It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We'll never be able to afford that. Greg, give me something that'll melt my face. Congratulations. You just started listening to Bantha Banter, a Star Wars chat show. This is a show by fans, for fans, and featuring fans. You might be surprised how much we all have in common. Hello and welcome to Bantha Banter, a Star Wars chat show. I'm Jeff. And I'm John. And we have a very exciting uh, couple of topics for you today, folks. Uh, in fact, we've got part one of what is it going to be? Probably maybe three, three or four, if I get verbose. And let's be yeah. honest, it's a fifty-fifty chance. Yeah, we'll we'll go uh, the last podcast network route and say three, maybe four episodes on it. Um, a, a music topic that John's been wanting to discuss, and I'm very excited to uh, take part in. That we'll get to in a bit. But before that, uh, we wanted to talk about the legacy of the sequels or the legacy sequels, which is a term that I actually kind of like. It's kind of the diff- the halfway between a sequel and a reboot. That's um, fair. Yeah, I like yeah. that. So uh, one thing that we've noticed, and, and John sp- uh, specifically uh, has seen talk on Reddit over the past year or so about the prequels finding a lot of love from younger generations, the people who, th- for them, this was their that was their first exposure to Star Wars, even even Episode One, which is the one that is you know most often derided the most by people of our generation, and so that has caused people of our generation, you know, first and second generation Star Wars fans to uh, sort of rethink the the placement of the prequels in in the entire saga and their relative quality and their uh, I guess their value culturally. And so the the question is can we see a similar thing happening in 10 to 15 years based on the sequel trilogy? And I think John you you use the phrase is the bias in the movies or in us? And which I liked. Um so just to give uh, some some uh, a foundation for what we're talking about, I noticed the the prequel love. I noticed as far back as uh, really epi- uh, Star Wars Celebration Orlando, which was back in 2017. Uh, Hayden Christensen appeared and was very was, was welcomed with open arms, and that's when uh, it became apparent that a lot of the the people that were adults, the younger adults at this convention, were people that for them the prequels are their Star Wars. The prequels, exactly. you get, you've yeah. got a generation that, that is the prequels and the generation, that generation and the generation immediately after them, for them, it's the Clone Wars, uh, which, which is going to be very interesting in, in a few years as well to see the nostalgia start come back for that in the next 10 years or so. And it didn't surprise me at all. Uh, and, you know, you and I both, we've talked before, there, there are a lot of movies that we love just because we saw them as kids. There are movies that I watch now as an adult and I'm thinking, you know, I get that this is not a good movie, but I enjoy it because I came to it at just the right age. Megaforce. 
Megaforce. Well, and the thing with Megaforce <laughs> is I, I recognize that Megaforce is a bad movie. I do. It, it is a guilty pleasure of mine, if, if there is such a thing as a guilty pleasure, which I technically don't believe in. But I'm thinking movies like, um, like Rad or, or Thrashin, which maybe are, they're not necessarily bad movies, but I enjoy them on a level that is deeper than they deserve because I was just the right age when I saw them. And I think the same is true for the prequels, regardless of, of your opinion of the relative quality of the films. I think one can objectively say that the trilogy as a whole is not as strong as the original trilogy from a filmmaking standpoint, from a storytelling standpoint. But that I, I, I truly believe that. But again, art is not objective. Art is subjective. And so if that was your first, if that was your entry point into Star Wars and you enjoyed it, I, you know, more power to you. I have no problem with that. I'm never going to say you're wrong. But um, do, do you kind of feel like that's that's the, the deal with those? Or do you think it's easier to love them if you saw them at, at the right age? Because Lucas always said they're they're movies for kids. So if you saw it as a kid, do, do you think that's really what it's rooted in? Or do you think that there is a generation that just sees film differently than us? Like the language is different. I think it's a little bit of column A and column B. And without getting too much into the weeds and derailing this too much, I think I would... I would argue with you in the sense that the prequel trilogy, and, th and that's what we're primarily focusing on, is objectively not as good as the original trilogy from a filmmaking standpoint. Because all the, I mean, all the criticism we've had, uh, the you know Hayden Christensen's acting, uh, the writing. You know, things like that, okay, I'll, I, I will grant you some of those are a little bit more objective, but who is talking about the cinema, the, the sequel, the prequel trilogy, excuse me, and saying, you know, oh, this is bad cinematography, or oh, I didn't get this cut, or I didn't understand this. Yes, okay, the writing is there. That is an objective point, but I feel like even saying objectively, these movies are not as well crafted as the original trilogy is part of our own personal bias. Um, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And when, when I'm thinking crafted, I'm thinking specifically, I'm, I'm thinking the writing and the acting specifically. And, and to a lesser extent, the special effects, I personally don't think the special effects are uh, in, in many cases are as good and as effective. But again, that's also a personal bias as well. But but I'm thinking st strictly storytelling and, and acting. But you're absolutely right. Cinematography, uh, costume design, everything else is is stellar. So that that, that is that is a blind spot on my part. So really what brought this on for me, and, and you and I had actually been talking about this topic for a while, is thanks to pandemic life, um, even though we're in the tail end, we are still in pandemic life. Um, I decided to re-binge watch Game of Thrones. And it occurred to me, of, for all the vitriol and hate that the last two seasons get, when you watch them with the benefit of time and hindsight, they're actually not bad. And I would argue, especially in the eighth season, while it ended abruptly, they're quite, they're actually quite good. And it's the same deal with kind of the prequel. You know, it, it, I went back and, and, and thinking about the prequel trilogy, it's the same deal. Yes, there are moments in episode one that are not subjectively good to me. Um, I don't, there are some, there's some of the acting, some of the writing. I mean, even some of the story where I'm just like, okay, I don't, I don't enjoy this. But as a whole, when you really look at it, when you kind of look at the overarching structure, this, you know, this vitriolic reaction that so many people had when it came out of, oh, George Lucas has ruined, has ruined Star Wars. You know, you know, it, it never got quite as bad as like, you know, people burning their Star Wars shirts and, and, and shredding their Darth Vader masks. I mean, at least I hope it didn't get that bad. I never well, saw it. Yeah, it, it seemed like it wasn't quite as bad. It seemed like it was worse. The, the the backlash from The Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker were worse, but I think that's only because social media was so much more prevalent. And, and those immediate fair. reactions yeah. were, were were possible. Um, but really for me, you know, and in in and you mentioned I I and I mentioned to you, and then you mentioned a couple minutes ago, kind of this concept of, you know 
looking on Reddit, for lack of a better term, there's an entire subreddit that's our prequel memes, which is literally, I mean, okay, first of all, it's memes. So, I mean, (laughs) a limited audience there, us oldies, you know, are not the best memers, so I get it. Um, But there's an underlying current of kind of this love for the prequels and, and for certain characters, I mean, you know, it, even some of it has, has slipped into popular, uh, popular vernacular, the whole concept of, you know, walking up to someone and saying, uh, hello there. And then the response is always general Kenobi, right. You know, kind of echoing that episode three scene. Um, or in, in one of the more bizarre ones that I don't quite understand is, as well, but the whole concept of Anakin Skywalker and the kids in the Jedi Temple. And right. it's like, well, this is a little dark. And I get that you're kind of lampshading it, maybe to take some of the darkness out. Or I don't know, maybe maybe they're just embracing the dark. Who knows? Um, but as I said, there's kind of this undercurrent. There's a love for these 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 sequels, pre prequel sequels, pre prequel, pre Wow, if you combine prequel and sequel, you get prequel. Wow, that's deep. <laughs> um, these prequels, you know, and, and I think some of it is, yes, this was their Star Wars. This is what they saw in the movies. Um, and this is what they grew up with. But I also think some of it has to do with our own inherent bias. And I think it's something that was magnified with the sequel trilogy. I think after not getting anything cinematic between 1983 and 1998 1999 um we all as as a collective group um not necessarily one individual had in our minds the way star wars was quote-unquote supposed to be and as a consequence so many people went into episode one thinking okay, we're going to see more epic space battles. We're going to see, you know, we're going to see the Jedi at their height and we're going to see a younger Yoda maybe. And we're going to, you know, and it's going to all be about the fall of Anakin Skywalker into Darth Vader, which by the way, is totally what we got over three movies. But because it didn't match so much of what so many people had in their minds, they were disappointed. Going back, it's kind of going back to Game of Thrones. You know, um, Danny Targaryen, technically won the game of thrones for about 30 seconds um but it didn't happen in the way people thought it should it didn't happen in the way it was expected and so there was this outcry well this was too fast it was rushed this it boiled down to this isn't the way it should have been done and we're back to episode one it's the same deal you know this we we open with a trade dispute like the crawl talks about a trade dispute between naboo and the Trade Federation. And our first two Jedis that we see on screen in the entire prequel trilogy are there to negotiate a trade disagreement. And all of a sudden, people are losing their minds. It's like, well, this isn't what Jedi do. And it's like, well... How do we know? Yeah. How do Yeah. And so I think some of it is ultimately people of our generation, people of the generations older than us, um went into the prequels thinking i know how it goes and then there when there was a lack of confirmation confirmation bias struck in and we we felt it was wrong whereas the people who were our age when the original trilogy came out so so millennia millennials yeah I'm, I'm not too great after millennials. Like I know there's multiple gener. I think that would still be millennial. I, um, yes. The, yeah. The, the millennial, the millennial generation are the ones that, that were, were coming of age as those were coming out. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And so they were, I mean, they had, you know, the people who were hardcore passionate millennial star Wars fans had seen the, 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 the original trilogy. They, you know, probably not as many times as we had because for the longest time, again, that's all we had. But they were watching the prequel trilogy on its own merits, and they were letting it tell the story it was trying to tell without superimposing this concept of what they felt the story should be. And right. ultimately, I think that's one of the reasons they fell in love with it a little bit more, because they didn't come into it with baggage. 
Right. There were there were no preconceived notions about what it was supposed to be and what it should have been. And and we had we saw the same thing with the sequel trilogy. The big reason that episode eight was so divisive is because it didn't go where a certain segment of the fan population thought it was going to and thought that it should. And then the same thing, they turned around and did the same thing with uh, the rise of Skywalker. It, you know, the, 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 the way that Ray's story ended was not what everyone was expecting. And regardless of how you felt about it, uh, you know, from a, from an aesthetic standpoint, um, it, it just rubbed a lot of people the wrong way because it wasn't what they wanted. And that's, you know, when, after what I learned from the prequels is going into uh, episode seven, the force awakens, I went in with no preconceived notions. I didn't, I didn't look for any spoilers online. I stayed away from a lot of discussions about it. I just wanted a good movie and that's what we got. And same with episode eight, episode nine, eh, jury's still out. We all know kind of how I felt about that, I, but I, you know, it's going to be a while before I really know exactly how I felt about it. But um, you know, I think we saw a lot of the same thing. And so I think you're probably right. I think that uh, we're going to see a lot of the same thing in about 10 to 15 years. Like you said, we're going to see a lot of kids who that was their first Star Wars uh, championing those. However, I think I do. This is me prognosticating here. I do think it's going to be a little bit different because the climate for uh, entertainment is so much different now things have a shorter shelf life even than they had in 99 and the early 2000s. Because even then, you know, things weren't playing in theaters for months at a time like they did uh, when uh, the original trilogy was out. You know, you would have Star Wars would would play for years. Uh, My dad saw The Sound of Music four times over four years at a theater in Charlotte, North Carolina, because it just kept playing there. And you just don't see that anymore. So I think what's going to happen, if I had to guess... The love for this, the the sequel trilogy will manifest itself in a love for memes and references to it rather than the the product the products themselves. Uh, but but again, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be roughly the same the same sentiment. It's just going to manifest itself in a different way, uh, and it's going to be interesting to see how they because. You, you've got a lot of people now uh, of a millennial generation who are are uh, taking a critical standpoint of, of about the prequels and and doing a lot of scholarly uh, writing and, and podcasting and speaking about it and just sort of some really interesting criticism of it. Uh, and I mean, criticism in, in the way that we are talking about it, where you're you're looking at something in a critical way, you're not criticizing it. Um, you know, criticism is not always negative. Uh, and so I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And I'm personally looking forward to it because seeing the uh, millennial generation appreciate the prequel so much has given me a different appreciation for it. And I look forward to having the same experience in, in another decade or so uh, with the uh, the sequel trilogy. And and I, I appreciate the sequel trilogy more than I do the prequel trilogy anyway. So it's it's going to be interesting to see what the, 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 the 10-year-old hot takes are on it at that point. Right. And also keep in mind that we're our reaction to the sequel trilogy is what it is now. But another wrinkle that kind of just occurred to me is that we're it's almost like we're in this laboratory setting and we're recreating this experiment, but we're actually this time changing the variables. So in between 1983 and 1999, we didn't have any large screen Star Wars. We had the books, we had the comics, we had some interesting cartoons um <laughs> to say the least but our our pro- those were our primary sources of kind of the the star wars trough for lack of a better term for us to feed at um then we had oh goodness what was it 10 years roughly between prequel and sequel roughly uh 2005 and 2015 so yeah it was a yeah 10 years yeah yeah um, but in that time, we also had things like the, the Clone, Clone Wars. Wars. Yeah, Star Wars um, did not lead the public consciousness. Right. Um, so, But we had a little bit more presence. But, you know, 10 years down the road, as we're, as we're looking back at the sequel trilogy, we're going to have more main screen content. We already know that, that we are getting the Disney Plus series for Obi-Wan. We already know we're getting a Disney Plus series for Lando. Uh, we already know we're getting a Rogue Squadron movie. We already know 
well, we kind of know that we're getting a Taika Waititi movie trilogy. I I keep going back hearing both things. Is he getting a movie or is he getting a trilogy? I have no idea. I so, would be fine with either one. Yeah. So he's getting something. And then you've still got theoretically the Colin Trevorrow trilogy. Theoretically. Like, you know, it's one of those no one has said no, it's not happening yet. Pretty sure it's not happening. He it's, got fired from Yeah. From episode but, nine. I'm pretty sure that's not happening. But also, you got to keep in mind, a lot of people now are going back and looking at that and saying, well, that maybe was a bad idea, um, especially when the 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 quote unquote hashtag Trevor cut got released for episode nine. And all of a sudden, everyone was like, OK, this could have been a not crappy movie. Um, right. But I'll tell you the, the reason that uh, there are a couple of reasons that won't happen, I, I personally believe is A, it would require too many people admitting that they were wrong who don't want to admit that they're wrong. And B, it would set a dangerous precedent, which the Snyder Cut has already set. Warner Brothers has already done with the Snyder Cut, but a dangerous precedent for uh, basically fans getting to pout until they get their way. Well, And uh, that's, not, that's not a way to run a, a, run a, run a railroad or uh, a media franchise. It's not, but as long as Disney or or Warner Brothers or whoever think that they can make money off it, it's always going to be a factor. But True. honestly, Good that's point. neither here nor there. What I'm trying to get at is in the 10 years between uh, the rise of Skywalker and that, that, that mythical 10-year mark where we, we can start looking back with enough time, with enough distance to you know start kind of reassessing our personal feelings on the sequel trilogy, is that we're going to have probably three, if not a couple more movies. Uh, we're going to have multiple uh, long form shows. And let's be honest, Disney is really kind of knocking out of the lock, knocking it out of the park with their, you know, this limit, this limited form series that right. they're putting out, whether it's in the Marvel cinema universe, whether it's in the star Wars. I mean, let's be honest. The Mandalorian is probably one of the best, at the time, short term, but looking more like a medium or long term series than we that we've had since, uh, oh God, um, a Breaking Bad. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of series that have just kind of been so beloved and and just had that mainstaying power that didn't that kind of ended on a high note. And I have to assume that John Farveau and um, uh, the rest of the crew are of that mindset of they're not going to let the male Mandalorian go until, Oh, for the love of God just ended already. Right. Um, so I wonder how that's going to color things too. Are, are we going to have kind of this star Wars fatigue continuing for lack of a better term? I think it's going to depend on, I, I, I don't think we're going to have the fatigue because I think they've done a good job of pulling back, uh, in, in a way, because we haven't had any, any new, uh, cinematic films. Uh, if Disney handles it right, I, I think it'll be fine. And it's, I think a big part of it is go, the the legacy of the sequel trilogy is going to depend on how Disney handles it. Because one of the things that has made the re-embrace of the prequels so so welcome for me is the fact that Disney, while the legacies, while the sequel trilogy basically ignored the prequels, Disney itself has not shied away from it, you know. Uh, with the Mandalorian, there are references to things that happened in the prequels. We're getting the Obi-Wan series that uses Ewan McGregor of uh, the Bad Batch, which three episodes in, as of this recording, I'm really enjoying a lot more than I thought, even thought I was going to. Same. So they, they've sort of legitimized the prequels because they've given us content that, in my opinion, surpasses the quality of the prequels, but it you know sort of gives it some credibility because that's the building block for it. So if they somehow work the storyline from the rise of Skywalker into what happens after it so that it sort of softens the blow that a lot of people felt with the rise of Skywalker. I think it will. And, and the last Jedi as well. I think it will uh, make them a little more welcome into the fold. Uh, if they choose to just ignore them and if they choose to ignore the rise of Skywalker, the way JJ Abrams chose to ignore the last Jedi, uh, then it's going to just continue the animosity from the people who have that animosity. So I think it's really up to Disney to uh, determine how 
how their the legacy of those films uh, ends up. I agree. No, I'm yeah. I'm right there with you. But it's going to be interesting to see, and I'm I'm looking forward to it. And I really, like I said, I really do hope that the uh, the generation who who grew up with these sequels uh, really does embrace them and and uh, sort of reclaims them the way that the millennial generation has reclaimed the prequels. Cause it's really been, it's really been wonderful for me to watch regardless of my feelings for it. I just love that there are people who do have that feeling about something, whether it's something I like or not. I just, um, a friend of mine says he likes watching nerds nerd out about the things that they love. And that's me as well. So I, I think, and I think we're kind of on the same page there. So regardless, I, I do hope that they get reclaimed and that uh, we learn to appreciate them in the way that, the kids, the kids these days probably and hopefully do appreciate them. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So now let's talk about some music, shall we, John? Okay. So over the last several episodes, over almost a year now, we've talked about, you know, the various impacts of John Williams's Star Wars score on the Star Wars universe, on us, and kind of on the greater sphere, for lack of a better term. But one of the things, I mean, we've talked a little bit about kind of the basis, the building blocks of John Williams's technique, especially in the use of leitmotif and stuff like that. But we've never really talked about where it comes from, where it comes from, how it found its way into the film score universe. And, you know, then you have John Williams and kind of the legacy of what came after him, even though he's still going. So not so alongside him, we'll say. Right. Um, so what I want to do is actually spend the next kind of couple of episodes talking about this concept of leitmotif, where it came from, where we saw it, kind of what the reaction was to it. In our next episode, I'll talk about kind of the early uses in film score. So talking about composers such as Prokofiev and Shostakovich and their their film scores for various Soviet movies. And then you've got Eric Korngold, you've got Miklos Rosha. And their early works with kind of the Errol Flynn and 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 King Kong and and you know even into Bernard Herrmann with the the Psycho movie uh, not excuse me Bernard Herrmann with the Alfred Hitchcock movies where we saw limited use of this ultimately culminating in this kind of John Williams concept of not only the return to the original idea leitmotif, but making that the primary focus. And then the episode after that, so this is episode three, magically, maybe episode four, who knows? Um, we get into the concept of how has John Williams affected what the film score is and how composers such as Michael Giacchino, uh, Howard Shore, uh, um, Harry Gregson Williams, how they've, you know, these, the the kind of the modern pinnacle for film score at the moment, for lack of a better term, how they've adapted their styles to kind of fit into this new kind of canon when it comes to film scores. But like everything else, and as The Sound of Music has told us, um, as, as your dad would know, because he saw it four times in the theaters um, over the years, we have to start at the very beginning because the beginning is a very good place to start. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I was waiting for I was waiting for the chuckle. OK, I know the joke lands when I get the chuckle. So you've got to go all the way back to, believe it or not, the Renaissance. And you're thinking, I would believe it. I mean, but it, on the surface of it, it's weird because now think of you know, all of what is going to be talked about today is going to be a bit of an overgeneralization. And so if you're really interested, I would really recommend finding a good, just generic tome on music history, because while I'm going to be talking in broad strokes, there's also that kind of pointillistic, tiny detail. So whenever anyone talks about music history in, in kind of this 
this generic term, understand under the surface there is so much more. So late Renaissance music is really um, broken down into the concept of the mass or sacred music and art song or or secular music. And that's kind of the big thing. Uh, the orchestra as we know it doesn't really exist. We have these things that are known as consorts. So like-minded instruments. Um, you have shams, which are early uh, predecessors of like brass instruments. You've got the viols, which are the early predecessors of string instruments. You've got recorders and, and various types of flutes. Um, you've got early types of or oboe and double reed instruments, but they're not really kind of the modern. You're not going to, at the end of the Renaissance, find a, uh, an oboe as we know it today or a bassoon or an English horn. I mean, those instruments did not yet exist. The trumpet, the three valve trumpet or the French horn. Uh, with its various rotors. They did not exist. These instruments are still centuries away from being codified into the musical lexicon. Then you have, at the very end of the Renaissance, a composer, an Italian composer, by the name of Claudio Monteverdi. Now, one of his big claims was... I would like to when, interrupt you right quick to make, and just to say for everyone who's listening, I actually know all of these names. Carry on. Okay, we'll see. We're going to get a little <laughs> deep here in a bit. We probably will, but so far, so, I, I everything you're saying, I'm actually somewhat familiar with. I'm actually so, kind of surprised myself. Monteverdi is one of these transitional game-changing figures, and he kind of functions as Bach would at the end of the Baroque and Beethoven would at the end of the Classical. He is considered this bridge figure, and he is one of the leading composers whose pushing of the genre, whose changing of the musical forms take us from one era into the other. So Monteverdi writes towards the end of his career an opera by the name of Orf, Orf, uh it's technically La Orfeo. Um, my French pronunciation is horrible and I apologize to everyone out there. Um, but it's basically uh, 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 Orpheus. It's the Greek legend of Orpheus. Now, okay, that's kind of cool. And, I, you know, if you look, you can find, I don't know, like 30, 40 operas written on the Orpheus theme. There's right. the very famous Can-Can um, from Orpheus in the Underworld written by Offenbach that everyone, bah, 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 which, you know, when I think of Greek tragedy, I think, you know, Can-Can lines. But a whole different story. Um, what is important about this for two reasons? One, it's considered one of the first operas. There had been a couple of what we now recognize as operas written before this, but Orpheus, um, uh, Monteverdi's Orpheus is actually performed still today. Um, you'll find it, you know, every 10, 15 years at the Met, a lot of mid-tier operas will still do this, especially with the advent of the historically informed performance movement. Um, secondly, because of the larger scale of the work, what Monte Monteverdi did was he combined these consorts. So you had your your sham consort and your viol consort and your your recorder consorts. Only he didn't write for them separately. He started writing them for together, which meant. For the very first time, we have an ensemble that is going to become the orchestra. We have our strings and the viols. We've got our shams and the brass, and we've got our recorders and and what becomes the flute as our as our woodwinds. Lastly, it's fascinating because even then, back in the Renaissance, Monteverdi started defining what would become the light motif. Now, we had seen some of this kind of like the proto-leitmotif, the proto-beginnings of it, even before then. You had things such as Cantus Firmus masses or parody masses, um, where, and, and not parody as in you were making fun of something, but what they would do is they would take a pre-existing theme and then they would write the entire work around that theme. Not necessarily a theme in variations, but um, almost this concept of, we're going to use this as our theme, and then we're going to write some more music to go with it. Again, 
horrible oversimplification. Um, but in Orpheus, what Monteverdi did was he took some of these themes, some were original, some were pre-written, but he started associating them with specific characters. So when Orpheus would sing of a particular thought or an idea, you might hear a little snippet here or there. It wasn't consistent. It wasn't always done, but it was one of the first examples of this remembrance motif that we had. Forward now into the late classical, early romantic, you've got Karl Maria von Weber, who is writing uh, Der Freischutz, which is interesting because that's kind of one of our next steps in opera. And it's not a pure opera in the sense of there's always music and all that, but there is um, spoken dialogue as well. Um, we had seen yeah. a little bit of this of Mozart. Um, the, you know, the, Mozart was was famous for kind of codifying the idea of what in German was called Singspiel, um, or literally sing and speak. Uh, Magic Flute is actually a really famous example of the Singspiel, because there are actual spoken dialogue in between arias and duets and so on. Do you, so let me inter interject something real quick. That I, I've heard that term before, and I've heard it applied to Sondheim a lot as well. Uh, is that sort of a some of his stuff that's almost talk sung because of just the way the the it's sort of patter and everything? Is that sort of a, a modern equivalent to something like that? Do you want the official party line answer, or do you want to know what I really think? I want to know what you really think. That is music his uh, music theater snobs being pretentious. Stephen Sondheim writes musicals. Well, and no, I know I get that as well, but I just is is that. A form of that you don't you don't think that that could be considered a form of the, the the song spiel i think the musical is a natural evolution of the sing spiel i think they have come you know they have a common thread i think they're very different though because in the sing spiel the the dialogue was usually minimalistic and it wasn't meant to further the plot whereas in modern musical theater and Sondheim, even even to the minimalistic at times degree that Stephen Sondheim does it, the book scenes are still plot driven, right? Because because they're they're even even the concept musicals are still book musicals for lack of a better term gotcha and, okay and with and, and I'm thinking specifically to Magic Flute because it is one of the most famous sing spiels that people would most likely know the dialogue in the in, in the dialogue in between various numbers is like oh wow that was weird wasn't it yeah <laughs> i wonder what's going to happen next <gasps> music starts and the music starts and then the queen of the night comes in riding a massive horse um or in a really great movie adaptation and uh, a world war one tank but that's a whole different topic um God, you got to love some people's interpretation of opera. <laughs> um, so we're now at uh, Der Freischutz, and Weber is now, he is taking it a step further, and he is associating certain musical ideas in a smaller scale with certain people. And I'm thinking specifically with Samuel, who is the analog for the devil in, in Freischutz, um, who is always associated with a diminished seventh chord. So now we we have this idea of not even a melody or a theme, but a certain chord is being associated with. So we have now yet another modern or another block of this leitmotif ideal. Um, we get in more into the romantic uh, the romantic period, and one of the like most concrete early examples is Hector Berlioz in the Symphony Fantastique, the Fantastic Symphony. It is it's it's a symphony in name only. It's incredibly programmatic. It is a five movement work that basically tells the story of an artist who has this unrequited love for a woman, and so. Um, he gets high on opium and has a dream. I'm I'm not even making this up, people. This is <laughs> this is, read the script. So it starts out. The first movement is him introducing the woman, and and she has this very specific 
fixed idea, this musical thought, that then pervades through the next four movements. The second movement is this idyllic... Um, this idyllic uh, scene in the countryside and, and there there's picnicking and, and so on and so forth. Um, and then we get, you know, she eventually rejects him and then he kills her because again, opium, not <laughs> opium, not even once. And the fourth movement we see, you know, he's marched to the scaffold and he, he has his head cut off. And in the moment, that moment right before he sees her, um, he sees her in the distance as a ghost and then you get this little snippet of her theme and then you hear the blade drop and it's actually really cool because and you need to listen to this because it's brilliant so we see we hear the little snippet of of the woman's theme and then this big orchestral hit and then these two pizzicatos in the low string so it's like womp bum bum so you actually hear the guy's head being cut off and his head bouncing down the stairs um and then we get to the last movement where now he's descended into hell because, well, he killed her. Um, and lo and behold, there she is because it turns out she's a witch. And we get the same theme intermixed with kind of this witch's dance. And, but it's still this concept of the ideal theme, the, the ID fix associated with this woman. And we see it elongated, we see it shortened, we see it augmented and, and, and everything throughout the entire piece. That takes us to the big papa of leitmotif. Um, and this is kind of where we're going to wrap it up for today. Richard Wagner, um, German composer, known for defining the late, well, the mid-romantic opera with his song cycle, Der Ring des Nibelungen, or The Ring of the Nibelungs, um, based off of Norse heroic legend, it is a four-cycle opera, with each opera lasting anywhere between four and seventy-two hours in length. It feels like these, right. these are these are long. I've I've seen a I've seen a production that was filmed for television. I've seen a, a portion of it, but yeah, it was like a nine-hour a nine-hour cycle they were yes. doing because yeah, it is it is in, it is intense. Anyone who who can survive an actual ring cycle performance is, you know, they're they're special in my book. So, what we have here is Richard 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 Wagner, excuse me, taking this idea of the leitmotif um, and combining it into. He also had this concept of the total work that music and singing and the orchestra and the lighting and the sets and the costume. And the staging, it was this concept that all of those parts form a whole that is, it, it, it's, it's the old adage, the sum is greater, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Right. That, Wagner was one of the first composers to try and codify that in his work. And as a consequence, leitmotif figured heavily into this concept because he had dozens upon dozens of characters um it's you know the really basically the ring of the nibelungs is about the foundation of valhalla and the first opera ends with the 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 gods basically taking their seat in uh valhalla then and as as the the story kind of gives away there's a ring and you might find some parallels to another epic cycle of literature that uses a ring um you know that... i always thought i always when i was a kid and i would hear about the lord of the rings and then the the this this opera i thought they were based on the same thing and so when i became an adult i was very confused when i realized they weren't i mean they are in a way the same basic yeah the same basic in legend this, i suppose yeah, in in the well not even i i wouldn't even necessarily say in the same legend as much as i would say the same concept behind the definition of the feeling of the essence of the legend you know on its <laughs> most basic level <laughs> right. there is a ring of power that grants you know grants these fantastic abilities to whoever has it um and that of course, as as we do, because humans and as humans in general kind of suck sometimes, 
uh, that power is used for evil. Um, so it therefore must be destroyed. Um, in, Va- in in the Wagner Ring Cycle, it's a lot more convoluted. Um, uh, spoiler alert, the, the Frodo of the story dies early um, in the last opera. Um, the, the Aragorn... The Aragorn and in kind of the um, um, Gandalf characters are almost kind of somewhat sort of combined at times in the character of Brunhilde, who is also put into a magical sleep um, at the end of the second opera by her father, Votan. Um, yes, that that Votan. Um, and it just it's it's hard to describe without flowcharts. Let's let's put it that way. It's very hard to describe without flowcharts. But the idea of the light motif becomes a flowchart of sorts for this opera because he goes over the top with his use. So you've got obviously light motifs for your major characters. You Brunhilde has a light motif, which actually most people know and not realize it, um, because it's the same light motif used for the Valkyries. And most which everyone knows from uh, the ride of the Valkyrie, now, yeah. Which is funny, ba, 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 da, ba, ba, is from the ring. It is from the second opera, um, and it is meant to represent uh, Brunhilda and her fellow Valkyries, um, which would eventually be represented by Tessa Thompson. Um, you know that that it's that actually that same concept. She's right. a Valkyrie. There, it's it's that same idea. So all the major characters have their their own light motifs. Some of them, like our Frodo analog in Siegfried, Siegfried has like uh, ten light motifs. Not only does he have a light motif for himself, he has a light motif for when he's traveling. He's got traveling music. He's got light motif when he's feeling a certain way. He's got light motif when he's under the power of the ring and when he's freed from the ring. And then there's Siegfried's death. Um, but even taking it down to ideas like there is a leitmotif for whenever the concept of servitude or humility or or representing a spear, like a literal spear, like that's how depth in depth the concept of leitmotif in the Wagner cycle gets. Um, the irony, of course, being that Wagner hated the term leitmotif. He's like, oh, no, 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 I'm not using leitmotif. He would call them Grundthema, or the, 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 the ground theme, or the basic idea, um, or simply just motif, um, or motive. Um, Do we know why he didn't care for the term? Honestly, because he was a megalomaniac. And That's, what I, th- hated, that's what I assumed. He hated the concept of he was using something that he didn't invent. Right. You have to remember, Wagner was so megalomaniacal that he decided there was no opera house in the world that was grand enough to house his ring cycle. So he built in Bayreuth his own opera house that is literally meant, it was originally intended just to perform the ring cycle. And and Bayreuth actually exists today. And... Um, up until, I mean, the last couple of years because of, you know, the end of the world, um, every summer they do a cycle. Um, well, not, excuse me, let me, they do a festival of Wagner operas. Every, they won't necessarily do all four ring cycle operas anymore every year. Um, and they'll part, you know, they'll pair it usually with some of his non-ring operas, such as Parsifal or Tristan and Isolde or Lohengrin or or any of, of his other operas. But they are one of the few places that still with semi-regularity will still do a complete ring cycle in, in one year. Um, and it's all because he just decided no one was good enough for him. Right. Um, and so it makes perfect sense that he would reject this kind of concept of, well, I'm using this thing that had already been defined. So we're now at the, at the very end of, uh, the ring cycle. We're at the very end of Wagner. We are starting to, we, you know, we're in the late 1800s. We're starting to get away from this idea of the, the romantic heavy 
chromaticism and the, just the heavy in general. And it pushes us into almost a reaction of sorts. Um, so they, uh, you have composers such as Igor Stravinsky, Claude Debussy, who are writing music that is almost anti-leitmotif, but they're doing it on purpose because they're writing purely as a reaction to this concept that Wagner had of, you know, we can represent anything we want in a melody or a theme or an idea or or a chord even. I mean, heck, in Tristan and Isolde, which is one of the non uh, the non ring cycle Wagner operas, um, there is one chord that defines the entire opera it, to the point now where even today we call it the Tristan chord, even though it 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 really it's 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 an augment it's a German augmented six chord which functions as a dominant going to either a secondary dominant or at the end of the opera a tonic. Um, and, uh, you know, the irony being that so many of these Debussy and Stravinsky themes, while they were trying to avoid leitmotif, are still, so. I mean, Claire de Lune is one of the most famous pieces that Debussy wrote, you know, which was supposed to be kind of like this musical painting of color and light and all of that. But, you know, I mean, we've had it... it how many cartoons that have used Claire de Lune have this, you know, this picturesque lake of a, of, of a swan swimming across or something, you know, something in that vein. So in trying to swear off the leitmotif, they became the thing they were trying to swear off, which is funny to me. Um, but again, I'm a complete and total music nerd. I hadn't noticed. Yeah, I know. So that's where we're going to put a pin in it for today. Because we are now at the beginning of the 20th century. Next time, we're going to talk about Richard Strauss. We're going to now get into the film scores of, of um, Prokofiev and Shostakovich and Korngold and Rosha and Bernard Herrmann. And we're going to talk about how they've picked up this idea of the leitmotif and they've started adapting it to their use. Okay, so if you'd like to know how all of this relates to Star Wars, you have to tune in next time. And I'm going to say tune in because that's a phrase I grew up with because I'm old. Yes, we are old. We are the olds. I Go ask your parents them. what that means, folks. So, John, thank you for that. And I look forward to part two of this series. And uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, on on John's deep dive, as well as our, our initial topic of how, you know, how the uh, the uh, sequel trilogy will fare uh, with the generation who is growing up with it uh, in a decade or so. So head to the Facebook page or Twitter and let us know. Until next time, for Bantha Banter, I'm Jeff. And I'm John. And may the Force continue to be with us all, because we need it. Thank you for listening. To find more episodes of Bantha Banter or other Marvin Dog Media podcasts, visit marvindogmedia.com. To keep up with all the happenings in the Bantha Banter universe, like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Marvin Dog Media, Instagram at Marvin Dog Media, and Pinterest at Marvin Dog Media. This show has been a production of Marvin Dog Media, all rights reserved. How many times can we say Marvin Dog Media? Marvin Dog Media.